Heavenly Father, uh, tonight as we uh, gather together uh, after a week of non-traditionally celebrating Thanksgiving, uh, Father, I pray that, uh, that Thanksgiving is not uh, this, this moment that we mark on our calendar that's uh, full of uh, usually grouchy family and a lot of food, um, but God, as we look at Thanksgiving, that it is the heartbeat of who we are in our life, and so even tonight... Uh, as we dive into uh, just a topic on releasing, on uh, not holding on to things, of, of letting go, uh, God, I pray that, uh, that it's out of a place of gratitude to you. And so, Father, as we go into your word, I pray that you would speak loud and clear. God, that, you're, um, that your voice is what we hear, your truth uh, is what's known, uh, that, um, that, uh, that, that, that you, uh, that we would walk out of here with an encounter and a word from you. So, Father, we give all this to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, tonight, uh, I, I want us to, we're going to kind of wrap up. We've been doing four weeks of looking at, in seasons that's hard, and troubled times, and crisis, there's tendencies that we have uh, that, that typically pull us away from what God wants. And there's things that are very unique, uh, uniquely a part of God's people and who he is that pulls us out of our tendencies and into uh, a different place when things like that are happening. Uh, over these past few weeks, we have looked at what it takes to survive these tough seasons. Uh, we've looked at things like this, that when things get hard, we tend to get angry and cynical. I know none of you, but I've heard there's people out there that are like that. Uh, we tend to get angry and cynical. But God calls us to gratitude. I don't know anywhere in Scripture where God says you should be really upset all the time about things that don't matter. But we get that way. Instead, God calls us to be people of thanksgiving, to be people of gratitude, that we are looking around us, not at the things that aren't going the way we want them to, but looking around at the things the way that God has lined them up and what he calls us to. Uh, another thing that we looked at is this. We tend to get discouraged and whining. Again, none of you, I'm sure, but some out there, right, get discouraged and whiny, but rather God calls us to perseverance, to being mature people as we walk through this, to not being ones uh, who just get whiny about things we don't like, but that have that kind of grit or resilience or perseverance that helps us become God's people through times that we didn't choose. Last week, Josiah preached on this, as we tend to be discontent and bitter, but God calls us to be content, to be thankful, to be pleased with, to look around and say, man, if not another thing changed and God just did what he's already done for me, that would be enough. And tonight I want us to look at this, is that when things get hard, we tend to smother and we tend to keep, we tend to hold on tight and block and guard, but God calls us to generosity. Another way of thinking about that is this, is if we keep holding on to everything, we'll stay shackled in troubled times. There's a huge part of our story. Christians, the Jesus follower, God's people are uniquely set up perfectly to handle the hard seasons of life with the most joy. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find most Christians who do it, but if we were to live out the life that God's called us to, if we were to embrace the truths that are there, if we were to follow the example that Scripture gives us and church history has continued, we would see that God's people are the ones who are the most joyful in some of the worst situations. 
Think about it this way. The king of our life that we've claimed led by being a suffering servant. So we've chosen the way that so often requires suffering and requires serving other people. I've even felt this way in some seasons that God led me into troubled times so I could be someone who was like Christ in there because someone in that spot needed to see him. Jesus says it in another way. He says, you're the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. You can't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. It doesn't do anybody any good. You've got to go out and be the light. People need to see in dark places who he is and what he's doing. The greatest commandments of our faith call us to be fully devoted to a fully devoted love of God with everything that we have. And goes on and says the second one is to like it is to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's a tall order. That means the things you want for you, you fight just as hard to make sure everyone else has them. The things you think you deserve or the things you would love to have, you want everyone else to do that. And what it means to love your neighbor is to make sure that they get the things that you think you deserve. So we've chosen a way of life that's not only what's best for everyone around us, we want to make sure that they have it. In this Jesus-following life, our salvation and our freedom is because our Redeemer left his personal rights and privileges and gave up everything so we could be saved. Knowing not everyone would even care. So we have to walk a life of laying aside our rights and our privileges so others can see Christ through us. No one is more equipped No one is more equipped on this planet to get through tough seasons like Jesus' followers. The hard part over the last few months and years and decades and centuries is oftentimes, unfortunately, Jesus' followers are the ones leading and complaining, not the ones leading in joy. We're the ones leading in political opinions, not peacemaking. We're the ones leading in anger and divisiveness, not ones that look more and more like Christ. And I want to remind some of us tonight who have surrendered our lives, who we've surrendered our lives to, who we proclaim to be Lord and Master and King over our lives, the one whom we've devoted our lives to being obedient to and to following. Uh, Philippians gives us a really good picture. Paul, as he's writing, gives us a reminder of who we're supposed to be like. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Here's the kicker with that verse, is it's being written in a prison cell by a guy who probably didn't deserve to be there. Who can write a message encouraging the church out there. Not to just be so caught up in ourselves that we forget how to love everyone else. Not to be so caught up with what we've got going on that we forget how to give away to the people around us and what they need. In verse 5 he says, in your relationships... 
That's easy to skip over because that one word, you get to choose what it means and what it doesn't. But think about it. In your attitudes towards the people around you, in your reactions to the way they do things, in your behaviors, in the way that you serve, in your words, and in your effort with one another, have the same mindset or the same attitude as Christ Jesus. That's a tall order. It's not make sure you do a better job than the person sitting in the row behind you. That's easy, depending on where you're sitting in the room, but I won't tell you where those spots are. He's not saying compare yourself to everyone else. He says pursue Christ, live like him, do what he is doing. In verse 6, he says that Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. It's funny to me how little I am equal to God and how much I try to become like him. And not in the great ways. God's in control, so I want to be in control. God can do whatever he wants, so I think that maybe I could probably be able to do whatever I want. I I try to be God, not be like God. Does that make sense? I know none of you are that way, but some of us are. And in here, we're reminded he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, pay attention, or to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by, being, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, the one who humbled himself, the one who became obedient to the point of death, that at that name, every knee would bow in heaven on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, Pay attention. The way of following Jesus is humility. Humbling yourself. It's being obedient all the way to the point of death and because of it being exalted by God. A lot of us try to skip that whole being obedient to the point of death and humbling ourselves. We just want to be exalted. I just want everyone to see me. I want people to see what I've done well. I want recognition. I want to look good. I want people to know what I've done for them. And I want them to write letters. I want them to call the news. I want every social media post they make to hashtag Don Coffin's the greatest. Because they've seen the the fruit of my life and they've seen how incredible I am. I want to be exalted, but we forget that the Jesus-following way of exalted is to serve. It's in humility to not consider ourselves equal. But to humbly give away. Many of us are so caught up in the pursuit of life that we think we want. That we give away the resources God gave us to fulfill it. And we selfishly use for ourselves the resources God's given us to accomplish it so that his will could be done on earth as it is in heaven. Take a look at Paul's teaching to a church battling selfishness, battling greed, battling idolatry. The church in Corinth, having everything but not contentment, is always looking for more. Uh, this church in Corinth could probably be most like uh, Corinth around this time, the city of Corinth, uh, was probably most like America out of any of the letters written. Uh, that's where most entertainment came out of. 
Corinth is where uh, most business happened. It's where a lot of trade went down. It's uh, kind of the center of, of culture. So the arts flourished in cities like Corinth. That's where the theaters were. That's where sports took place. It was one of those places. And they kind of had a little bit of everything. And I think if you read through Paul's letters to those two churches, you'll see it. Because a lot of what Paul challenges them is they think they're okay. And Paul reminds them how not okay they are. And remember, this isn't a letter written to the pagans in Corinth. It's a letter written to the church in Corinth that starts to look a little bit too much like the world around them. You start caring about things that God's not caring about, and you grab onto things that God's not grabbing onto, and you neglect and forget and stop thriving and, and, and pushing for the things that God is calling us to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, I want us to get a good picture of this before we jump into 9 where we're going to be tonight. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Paul reminds the church in Corinth this. He says, now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Right Before we talk about you, I want to give you an example to think about. I want you to know about uh, what it's like to be a Christian in some of these other parts of the world. He goes on and says in verse 2, in the very midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And he says, for I testify that they even gave, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability is they were able to release even though they didn't have it. One of the things that catches me in these verses is this, is that poverty isn't the excuse to not be generous. We use it, right? Well, why didn't you? Well, I, I work hard for my money. It's like, okay, cool. Why didn't you give? Well, you know, I'm really stretched thin. Why didn't you do this? Well, I just don't have it. Well, this, it, it's not the thing that singled them out. Poverty isn't the excuse to not be generous. It just can't get there by itself. It says that there was an overflowing joy, and that was the key to their rich generosity. It seems in the mix there, they had extreme poverty. Not extreme poverty by our standards. Extreme poverty like extreme poverty. Nothing. But what they also had was overflowing joy. And I think one of the things that trips us up, probably more than anything is we have a little bit more than what we should, and we've got a lot less joy than what we should. Here's a reminder for us. The church that was suffering and living in poverty were way more generous than the people living in discontent comfort with way more money and way more excuses. Paul then goes into his word for us as we grapple with the obedience to let go when we want to take hold and spend away. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, when you jump to the next chapter, is where we're going to spend our time. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. And as you look at it, it's this idea that you've got a big seed bag on the side. You're all farmers tonight, so that's how we're going to pursue this. As you reach in, you grab the seed, you throw it out. The more you throw out, the more that's going to come up out of that, Right? I didn't do any kind of farming stuff growing up, but I know that that's probably true, right? This last spring, we planted a tomato seed, and we got, I don't know, dozens a day, week, something like that. There's tons that popped out of it. Why? Because the more you 
put in is what the more that comes out. He's not talking about spending. He's talking about planting. He's talking about investing, sowing, this idea of throwing seed. And this isn't God's get-rich scheme. I've heard people use that before. You know, well, I really need money, so I should just give a bunch away. Well, hold up, chief. Because here it doesn't also say, hey, if you want a bunch of extra money, what it does say is there will be a harvest that grows. It may not be financial. That harvest may be blessing. That harvest may be reconciliation in your family. That harvest may be forgiveness. It may be stuff that you didn't even know was happening. But because you were willing to give up what you thought was yours, God started blessing you in ways that you were never able to before. It changes lives. And it's wild because God reminds us you can't serve both God and money. We think we can. In America, we really think we can figure this out. God said it's impossible, and we're going to take him to task on it. I think we could do both. God of the universe says we can't, but maybe we can get him on this one. And here, we're reminded. We're reminded uh, that all we have to look at, his way of turning dollars into transformation, is when we release the thing that is one of our biggest idols. God shows up because we're able to worship God in ways we've never had before. When we trust him because he's worthy, which is where we get our word worship from. When he's worthy and we don't think we're worthy, we start to see what a worshiped God blesses and gives favor and rolls out on when it shows up in our life. This idea of a farm is you're sitting on seed from the harvest before. Last fall, we collected all the crops, and here's everything we're going to do. And the decision is this. How much of this do we eat, and how much of this do we put back? How much of this are we going to consume for our day-to-day -day life, and how much of this are we going to throw out to make sure we can do much more than what we want? In farming, here's how it goes. If we can eat less now, that means we can plant more now, which means we can reap more later. And a lot of us like the word now more than we like the word later. And especially when we're going through crisis and hard times and trouble in our lives, we want to hold on to at least what we have now because we don't know what tomorrow brings. So we hold on to it and we squeeze it and we smother it and we don't let it go, which means we can't surrender it to God, which means we've said we're in charge of our finances, not you. The more you release, the more it will multiply. The less you release, the less you will see it grow. Verse 7, he starts getting to the heart of the situation. He says, each of you should give what you've decided in your own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Some of you grew up and you, if you grew up going to church. I remember when it was the money sermons, everybody kind of just did one of those, like, I hope they're not looking at me. Right? It was always kind of like, oh, here we go. we got to do it again. And here's what we forget, is we forget how closely our heart is tied to our finances. So we think it's about money when it has very little to do with it. When Jesus teaches about money, when he talks about resources, when he dives into these conversations, it's because he knows that where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And if we can talk about that, and why aren't we generous? And we'll say, no, no, no I'm, I'm generous. I gave like a, a penny to the bucket with the guy ringing the bell, right? And we'll justify ourselves in crazy ways. 
And what God gets us back to is this heart. There's a consistent practice, an example of 10% giving to God. But here's the reality. It's not a command. It's not where God says, here's what you have to do. Here's what you need to do. Here's how we find that 10% over and over in Scripture. It's a reoccurring response to the goodness of God. Because God blessed us, we're going to give him 10%. Not because God asked for it, because that is what we're going to give. And so over and over you see this. Now I love because when he says that God's looking for that cheerful heart, not people that follow a command, not people that are doing out of obligation or compulsion, but because God's been good to us. There's a story I love in Exodus where, and usually I'll use this often, when, especially when we're preaching on money, because for me it's, it's been, been the thing that rings true in my heart. Is there's a point where he's talking about offerings, and, and he's talking there, and, and, and God's instructing his people and says, Hey, listen, uh, you're going to be preparing to give away your first and your best. Most of us aren't looking at our pasture trying to figure out what cow we're going to have slaughtered this year, I'm guessing, right? So, you know, baptize it and turn it into finances. That's what we're talking about. And what he says is this. He says, your kids are going to come up and they're going to look at you and they're going to say, why are we doing this? Because it doesn't make sense. That money could go to Disney World, right? Or at least the gas to get down to Disney World and then we'll have to figure it out once we get there. But, right, uh, it, it's gonna, it, we could use this to buy more clothes. We could buy the thing of the toys we could get if we didn't give all this away, if we just held on to it. He says, your kids are going to ask, why are we doing this? And what he tells them, it says, remind them of this. And this is in Exodus. He says, remind them of this. Tell your kids that we used to be slaves. We used to be in Egypt. We used to have nothing. Uh, we used to be bound to a system that we didn't belong to. And God, by his mighty power, saved us out of it. And it's been one of my favorite reminders, uh, as we talk generosity looks like, is to remember where we used to be and remember who it is that brought us out of that so that we know he's owed everything. The biggest problems in my life have been where I've tried to hold on to what belonged to God. In multiple areas, not just finances, decisions, relationships, attitudes. It's when I think I get to pick. He says, not reluctantly, because if you think someone or something is more worth than God, then he doesn't want your guilt money. He says, not under compulsion, not like you feel like you have to, because you don't. God is looking for an inward transformation that grows and matures into overflowing joy. He's looking for your heart to change first. And what he's saying is, money's later. Let's talk about this. But once this happens, then this is going to come out of it. In verse 8, he says, and God is able. God is able. That's a verse. Those are words that have been ringing with me these last couple weeks is to be reminded that God is able. Now read this verse, because if you listen to the wrong preacher or the wrong radio station, they can take this one, swing it some way it does not belong. He says, God is able to bless you abundantly. Right? And some of you, that's not the prayer on the way to the lottery counter, just so you know. God, you said that you're able to bless me abundantly. I see it's $400 million, Lord. Only you can do this by the power of Jesus. I'm going to put $4 because I trust you deeper. right? And so you go into it like that. That's not what he's talking about. Here's what he says. He says, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that, that's where we get tripped up. It's for a purpose. There's a reason why God can bless you abundantly. Pay attention. 
So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you can abound in every good work. He doesn't leave margin for error. There's no way to put an asterisk and say, well, except, you know, everything God gave me is so that I can do every good work. Everything God's blessed me with is so I don't have to say no to an opportunity he's put in front of me because it's for his glory. And that opportunity isn't over at Chicago Ridge Mall, just so you know. He's prepared you and he's equipped you and he's blessed you abundantly so that something that falls into his will and his plan, when you cross its path, you don't have to say no. So many of us have gotten so good at saying no to God because we want to continue saying yes to ourselves. We want the nicer car, so we're going to pay for that, which leaves us little money to do the extra stuff. We wanted the nicer house, which leaves us with little margin, so we can't do anything extra that God asks for us. Uh, we want to spend, 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 spend on things that we love. And whether that's a Coke at McDonald's or whether it's purses and shoes, we want to spend our money our way, which leaves little margin for what it's actually there for. So that on, every, on all times, having everything we need, that we would abound in every good work. Most of us abound in stuff, we abound in debt, and we abound in anxiety. But God, and we want God to give us more. Here's the reality. What we're asking is, God, would you give us more so we can keep doing what we've always done? I would love more debt. I want more anxiety. I want more stress in my life. Because that's what I've done with everything else you've given me, so I'm going to keep that going. God, would you keep it coming so I could keep doing more of that? We want God to give us more, but all we would do with it is build up what we've always done in the past with more stuff, more debt, more anxiety, using our financial resources so that we would never have to say no to any good work. That is a mentality shift. It's a heart shift. It's a transformation that happens when we start to see what God looks like in, in a generosity mindset. It's about preparation for God's plan. The way Paul is instructing the church is to be reminded God has opportunities around the corner that you could be a part of and you may have to say no because you're selfish. God has opportunities around the corner and you may have to say no to that uh, because you wanted your windows to roll down on your car. I'm a witness. They don't currently. You want new shoes, you want a bigger whatever, you want nicer something, you want more of blah, blah, blah. And what you end up with is more of that, and you stop and you lose sight of where God's going, and you fall away from his plan so you can keep pursuing your own. It's about preparation for God's plans and purposes, not about lifestyles of the rich and famous. In verse 9, he says, it's written... He says, they goes back and he quotes the Old Testament. He says, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. What I love about that verse, and Ray and I were talking about this uh, on our drive for Thanksgiving, is uh, I was rereading the uh, um, Good Samaritan, uh, story of the Good Samaritan. As I was reading Here's one of the things that, that caught me is we've got this guy who's gotten the trash kicked out of him. They've stripped all of his clothes off. He's laying uh, with no clothes, bloody, beaten on the side of the road. And all these people pass by. None of them knows his story. They just see him how he is. 
And I love that the, 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 right, the, at least who Jesus puts as kind of the key person in the story, this, this Samaritan person as they walk by, they don't know anything about them. And they're not expecting anything a month down the road in return. All they see is someone that needs help. And in this verse, what I love is where he's challenging and what he's bringing back for us to remember is give it to the poor. I guarantee your $5 that you help somebody with is not going to alter the course of their life. It's going to help them in the moment, and tomorrow there'll be more needs. But what he says is the more you give that way, the more righteousness you'll see coming on to yourself. God says, I'll take care of providing it for you. You take care of giving it away. But in our own version, we hear God is supposed to keep giving us more and more and more because we want more and more and more. And I want to build more and more and more. And I want to have more and more and more. And I want to make sure that what I have is enough. And especially in seasons like this where there's crisis and trouble. We think if we give it away, we may not have it later when we need it. And so we grab it and we hold on to it. And it flies right in the face of the immature cultural entitlement that we have to our stuff. Instead of turning God's provision into kingdom ministry, we turn God's provision into our possessions. Now, hear me say this, there's nothing wrong with enjoying life with the money you have. There's even places in scripture where we can see God blessing that decision, but that's not its full purpose. A hallmark of God's people are the ones who, like the Macedonian churches, had very little to give, but gave it out of an overflowing joy. You see, Jesus on the cross, listen, when I have a headache, I'm a rough person to be around. Hanging on a cross is a whole different ballgame. Asking God to forgive the people that were beating the trash out of him. Asking God to bring the people next to him into paradise with him when he goes. There's something wired into the DNA of a Jesus follower that puts us in a place to look at the world around us and say, what do we have to give even when we're in our worst circumstances? In verse 10, he says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase. We love those words, supply and increase. Keep it coming and keep it coming more. He says, we'll also supply and increase the store of seed and we'll enlarge the harvest. And we like to stop there because we want to see the money come rolling in. But that's not what he says is going to start enlarging the harvest of. God has given you the resources and the ability to turn those resources into actual sustenance. Supply and increase, we love that. Enlarge the harvest, sure. Of my righteousness? How about a five-car garage? I want to see the increase in my clothing wardrobe. Jesus be a ribeye every night on the table. That's what I'm looking for. An increase in the harvest. I'm, I'm ready for it. But he says the thing that you're going to start reaping is righteousness. The stuff that you'll start pulling out of what you've planted is your character. It's your integrity. Uh, it's the maturity in you that develops to be more and more like Christ. God will give you everything you need to multiply your life into others. And don't worry, he has more for you to take home. You're harvesting righteousness. When you give, you're gaining more of him. When you give away dollars, 
which makes a little bit more sense when Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. That's got his face on it. Because what you give to me, you'll see come back to you in ways that you've never understood before. When you're generous in ways of the kingdom. And he reminds people what it looks like, right? It's going to be the ones that when I was naked, you gave me clothes. When I was in prison, you came and talked to me. It's when you were generous with your time. And you were generous with your energy. And you were generous with stuff you didn't want to give away. When you gave it to the least of these, you did it to me. And that is how it starts changing. We love the words abundance and prosperity and overflowing, but what if God's plan for your life had more to do with an overflowing soul rather than overflowing wallet? Would that be enough for you? And in church, you can nod your head and say yes and feel really good about it. But on Monday or Tuesday, when God's asking from you, what's your answer? God's direction for your life is aimed at you becoming more like Christ, to live more like Christ, and giving away is a key to that end. In verse 11, he says, you will be enriched. He's like all-inclusive language here. In every way. You'll be enriched, not in some ways. Uh, it's an all-encompassing. Why? Because your Father knows what you need before you ask it. He understands who you are, how you work. He built you, He wired you, He designed you. He knows. And he says, in this case, you will be enriched in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Uh, man, when I was reading this this week, I was wondering how many times, how many times has God enriched me in every way and I've not been generous on every occasion? It's easier to point out the handful of times where I have been rather than go back and try to figure out where I wasn't. We like to be enriched in every way so we can be enriched in every way. But there's a purpose for it that God points out. Supplied in every possible way so you can be generous on every possible occasion. And when it's aimed at the kingdom of God, the return on investment is people turning from their old way of life so that they can give thanks to God. It's so people can see his goodness, so they can release joy and gratitude to who he is. Uh, in 2005, uh, I got to go build a house, and it was kind of one of those where they organize everything, they get all supplies, you show up with a team, you build the house, and it, uh, it was through a Christian organization. And I remember having this moment as we were doing it, like, man, we're building people, I'm doing something that matters, my life, right, my name's going to be on these people, and every night they're going to sit, and they're going to look at my name on a wall. By the way, they didn't put my name on the wall, but, you know, in my mind, what I was driving down, I was like, you know, Man, I'm going to do something so incredible for somebody that every night at dinner, they're going to look and say, I don't remember Don Kaufman, but he changed our life forever. And as we were working, I realized nobody cares what my name is down here. Nobody cares who I am. Nobody cares what I'm doing. Here's what they're going to know. They prayed. God used someone somewhere to do something. And he answered. And the minute that became good enough for me, you start to see a little bit of transformation. I care more, not always. Do I care more that God gets thanks or do I still want my name attached to it somewhere down the road? Is the, is the anonymous giving? Are we good with that? In verse 12, he says, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanksgiving to God. I love this idea that it's many expressions. It's not a singular way of people just going, thanks be to God. 
Thanks be to God. No, they're thanking God for all this stuff. Man, God, thank you. Because I remember when I was at my lowest and I prayed that you would send somebody and I had no idea that there was people out there like that and you connected me. Thank you for that. And I had no idea that they would be able to bless me when I needed it. And thank you for that. And I had no idea that one day I'd be able to contribute to that so I could be part of that blessing. Thank you for that. There's so many different facets and ways that God starts using and thanking and blessing and giving He says, supplying the needs of the people in the church and overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. That he would use people like us to do ministry like his, to make more of his kingdom feel like it's more a part of the actual world that we live in. That in our neighborhood and in our relationships, we would see more of God come because we've released more of what we want to hold on to. Now, I love this in verse 13. He says, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, because you've been generous, because you've given, he says, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel to Christ. And I think sometimes we feel like it's just about money. And God says, man, if you're willing to get rid of the thing that you want to make an idol, if you're willing to let it go and invest it in the right things, watch what happens. For your generosity and sharing with them and with everyone else. In verse 14, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that God has given you. Not because you did something incredible, but because they've seen God work in your life. They've seen the space you've given God to freely work and who you are and what you do. They've seen his grace poured out in your life and they see that this was somebody, right? Go back 20 years ago and tell me about your life story. And people will be able to look at you today and say, because of the grace of God. That's why that generosity is flowing. That's why they're giving. If we would have met 20 years ago, you would not have seen this kind of person. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Generosity as a way of proclaiming the gospel and giving people a tangible way to see Christ in action. Why? Because everyone else keeps their money. Everyone else holds on to all their stuff. Everyone else likes the word me, my, mine. And we sound like toddlers trying to fight over toys. And instead, there's something about the church who understands that their life, and yeah, even their finances, is not their own. It's God's. And we pray that prayer, God, it's not what I want to be done, it's what you want to be done. I'm a picture person, I like to think in pictures, so I I made a couple of these and I hope it makes sense to you. Because there's a couple ways that we get caught in, in these different processes. There's a process of generosity and it seems like there's a process of scarcity. So if you look at this one, here's what this ends up looking like. In the top right, when God blesses, right, when God blesses, We can keep it for ourselves. And scarcity leads to unmet needs. There's things out there that God's called us to, but the resources he gave us to do it, we didn't do it. So we left with unmet needs. And it creates this distance that separates us further from God because we started wanting us more than we wanted him. And we started doing me more than we want to do whatever he wants. And that leads to selfishness and fear and doubt. And so next time there's more that comes in, we just want to keep it for ourselves because we don't know what's going to happen. Because I want more, because I've got some doubt about these things now, and I've got fear about I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, so I better hold on to it. Make sense? 
Now there's another way that it goes about and it looks a little bit more like this next slide. In that top right in the same, when God gives it, we can give it away. We can release it. And that's what the Bible calls generosity. It's releasing. Uh, and it leads to met needs. We read that in uh, this chapter of 2 Corinthians, which goes into this word, I love it, it ministry. Ministry. Not just the ministry of the church. Serving people because Jesus is alive in who you are. Uh, this looks like ministry between you and your neighbor, and it never has to touch New Life Oakland. It looks like ministry uh, to your family, ministry to people you work with because you met their needs and allows them to give thanksgiving to God. And the road to get there is the way you minister that to them, the way you serve, which goes into righteousness. And so that the next time God gives us more, we've seen and we can trust because he's shown us what he's done in the past. So we know that we can trust him more with it as we go in the future. And the hard part for us is we got to figure out how do we want to process what God's given us? How do we want to work with what he's brought into our lives? I love, and Josiah read the verse last week, but I love when Paul is, is teaching and he's writing and he says, listen, I know what it is to have tons and I know what it is to have nothing. I know what it is to be in the great places. I know what it is to be in the low ones. And in all things, all time, I've learned to be content in every season. Because when you're content, you're thankful. And when you're thankful, you're generous. And when you're generous, it starts meeting needs and it starts leading people to give thanksgiving to God. And when people give thanksgiving to God, it wells up something into them and it unlocks some stuff into us. And this isn't the how to build a $7 million church building in three weeks. It's the how to allow your life to become more and more like Christ as you release things to Him and He shows up more and more to you. And it's personal for me. When I was in high school... I don't know, 16 years old, probably something like that. Uh, a kid on our football team invited me to go to youth group with him at a church. Uh, I grew up down in Springfield, and so I went uh, and started enjoying. Mostly I started enjoying that I didn't have to be home one night of the week. I could be gone. That was helpful for me. I liked that there was pizza, and I liked that there was girls. So all three of those things lined up great in my life, and so I kept going. And summertime came, and uh, there was a conference that the church was going to, and they were saying, we want everybody to come, and you know all that kind of stuff. And here I saw not just one night of the week I could be gone. This was a full five nights of the week I could be gone. So I wanted to be gone. So I was like, let's do it, whatever it takes. $350, okay, I'll see you next time. I'm probably not going to be able to do that. The cool thing was, I remember someone from the church came in and saying, hey, um, one of the things our church likes to do with our money is we like to scholarship." We like to make sure that money's not a reason that people have to say no to coming to some of these things. And so someone, people I've never met, put money together, and they was the church budget, and I was able to go uh, to Adrian, Michigan, to a retreat where I encountered, I grew up in church, I'd encountered God my whole life. I had a real encounter with him, though. And God messed with me in ways that I didn't think possible. And he spoke to me in ways I'd never heard before. And I found myself in a place of receiving Christ that I'd never been to before. And I would point to that moment and say, that is where Jesus became real. That's when I uh, uh, got off my throne and put Christ as king over my life. Now, here's the crazy part of that. It's because someone's generosity was poured out into people. And it welled up into big thanksgiving to God uh, that overflowed in ways that no one would have been able to see. 
And I love looking back now because when I was 16, I wanted to go to the Southern Illinois University to be an architect. Now, I don't like math, science, or physics, so I'm not sure why. I think it's because I loved Legos growing up, but either way, if you know anything about Southern Illinois University, that not would have been the place for me, all right? And I'm thankful that because of the overwhelming joy that welled up into rich generosity, that I was able to encounter Jesus in a way that I couldn't have done on my own, but because of the generosity of people, God did something in my life or put me in an opportunity where he did something in my life. And to see the ripple effects of what God's done since then in my family, in our boys that we're now raising, in the family that we now have, and what God's done uh, throughout relationships and all these different things. And I can point back and say, I don't know who it was or what they did, but I'm thankful they were generous. I have seasons of my life marked by scarcely releasing to God. Some of my lowest points, spiritually, were when I stopped releasing and started keeping. But I've also got seasons of my life marked by generous, generously releasing to God. And here's what I can tell you. So much of our life is held up by the provision and the grace of God that at this point, it's foolish for me to think of not continuing with what God's instructed us to do because I'm afraid that he would remove what he's been giving us. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about favor in ways we don't deserve it, grace in ways that I can't explain it, uh, forgiveness, uh, 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 peace that I don't understand most of the time. There's joy that I feel even when I'm going through things that I would wish away if anyone gave me the opportunity. And I've seen God bless us more and more, and I'm convinced that a portion of the reason has been obedience and generosity. And even in our church, we've seen so many people praise God because of what he's done in our church family. Some of you here have been baptized because you've uh, encountered a church family here and you've walked with Christ and you've seen that transformation and that change, not because we're such a great church, but because we're a group of people that are trying to be like Jesus. And there's something authentic about that that you were able to see Christ in. We have seen generosity result in God supplying more and produce more times of trouble, crisis, and seasons of fear will cause us to hold on tighter for fear of losing it. But God continues to call us to release it to Him, to trust Him, and watch what He can do. I love these simple words that Paul uses over and over is just to repent and rejoice, repent and rejoice, repent and rejoice. And it's not the sandwich board dude that's super angry downtown yelling at everybody, if you don't repent, you're going to burn in the fires of hell. It's the idea of you don't have to keep walking in the way that you're going. You don't have to keep struggling in the ways that you're struggling. You don't have to keep tripping over the same stuff over and over. You can turn around and come back to Jesus and you can rejoice because of what that life looks like. And you can give thanks to God and you can walk with him. Some of you have been scarce towards the kingdom and are paralyzed in certain areas of life because of it. And releasing and letting go is what he's calling us to. Some are using God's resources for personal pleasure and it's stealing our overwhelming joy. Let go. Some of you are stuck in your spiritual maturity or lack thereof, and growth because you can't let go of control and trust that's represented in money. God is faithful. God is good. 
And he has more for you than you could ever imagine. Here's what I know. Is you may have to lose your life so you can gain it. But if you gain whatever he's got for you, it'll be worth losing everything you've got. I love, uh, Jesus gives this analogy, and I don't think it's so much about money as it is about our soul. But I love that he uses money to help us understand the severity of what will hold us back from it. He uses this really short parable. I think it's one or two verses. And he says, it's kind of like the guy that goes out into a field and he starts digging and he finds this buried treasure. And he grabs it and he looks at it and he opens it and he sees what it is. But it's not on his land so he can't take it. But he sees how valuable it is. So he closes the treasure and he puts it back in the ground and he buries it over and he goes home and he sells everything he has. And my assumption is when Jesus says everything, he doesn't mean some stuff. He got rid of all of it. So he could go buy that land so whatever treasure was on it could be his. And for us, here's my prayer, is that you're willing to release the life you have now so you can go and get that thing that God has out there for you that your old life is willing to get fully rid of so you could uh, walk into that new one so that you could get rid of all the stuff that you currently call treasure. And when you see what God has for you, that you would abandon it so fast and you would ditch it at the nearest garage sale so that you could run and go for everything that God has for you. And oftentimes the thing that holds us back is we just want to hold so tight onto the things that we think matter that we don't think it's worth it. There's risk involved. What if it sells out from under us? What if we don't have enough when we sell it? And all that stuff plays in. Would you be willing to release so that you can take hold of everything that God has for you. Let's stand and pray. And, and, and I want to challenge us to do this because I think that there is a, um, there's a posture uh, that we see throughout Scripture. And, and when we read the Bible, we see praying with lifted hands. We see people worshiping with their hands outstretched, and uh, it's one of those. And uh, and and I'm I grew I grew up in a Lutheran church, so you're not supposed to move, you're not supposed to close your eyes, you look forward, you don't do anything, right? Uh, and so I grew up worshiping like this, holding my hymnal, reading, going through all that. Nothing wrong with it. But I never really raised my hands. I guess is all I'm saying. We didn't clap during songs. We didn't do any of that kind of stuff. And I remember in college, uh, starting to be around an environment of people that were, grew up in different places than what I did and experienced church in different ways. And I remember seeing a couple of people raise their hands and I was thinking, the world's wrong with them, right? What's that all about? But here's what we see over and over in Scripture. Is there's this physical uh, way that we react to something that God's done. We see it throughout many things. That baptism really by and large it's just a physical way we respond to something spiritually that God's doing and and lifting our hands or physical postures of worship are one of those things where we can express outwardly what God's doing inwardly and tonight uh, as I pray and as we sing this worship song uh, would you open up lift raise however you feel comfortable some of you maybe it's kind of like the sneaky one so nobody knows and that's fine right Uh, Would you lift your hands? Would you open up your hands? I guess is what I'm saying. And would you release? God, would you release? Lord Jesus, we come to you as people. 
and you know us well because you created us and you've watched us fall. You see us slip and you've seen us take a hold of you and come back. Lord Jesus, tonight I pray as we leave this season of Thanksgiving and we go into uh, what should be on paper one of the most joyful, hope-driven, celebratory, uh, celebratory seasons on the calendar where we celebrate Emmanuel, that God came to be with us, that Jesus showed up on earth. And it's so wrapped in how much money we have to give and the presence that we'll have and how much do we have to be as giving as we want to and we lose it. So Jesus, today I pray that as we lift and raise our hands, Father, that we would be able to submit and yield and return, not just our money, but not excluding it. Father, that you would have our heart. God, that you would take the sin that weighs us down. Father, that you would lift from us the worry and the anxiety. We're done holding on to it. The unforgiveness and the bitter. The resentment and the anger. God, we release it. And in the same way, the things you've given us that we can do certain things with. In this area of finance and money, God, I pray that that idol that we would release. Father, that we wouldn't hold on to it, that we wouldn't come up with our own plans before we seek what you have to be done, that we don't uh, pack out the margins so thin that there's no room for what you want to have done in it. God, I pray that in all things, at all times, that we would be able because of what you've done in us and who you are to us and who we've become through you and in you that we would be able to well up in overflowing joy and pour out an expression of thanks to you. Father, we want to become more and more like Christ. So Father, would you not allow finances to get in the way of some areas where you want to do that? Father, in this season where we want to hold on to, would you remind us that in seasons of crisis, that we're people of generosity? So Lord, we surrender ourselves to you and ask that you would receive us, that you would transform it, and that you would send it out in ministry that would result in overwhelming joy and praise to you as we sing this in Jesus' name.